one of the main findings is it allows you to be authentic, your true self, mm. because it doesn't matter so much what people think of you. If you could love and respect yourself just because you're a human being, you don't have to get everyone's approval. And so being less dependent on other people's approval allows you to be authentic. And that's a good thing for everyone. Hello and welcome back to Miseducated with me, your host Tash Doherty. Today I am really honoured to be able to share an interview with one of my idols, Dr. Kristen Neff. Our conversation covers all kinds of fascinating things, but briefly I'll just share with you. We look into self-compassion or how people can be kinder to themselves. We talk about the latest findings in the research. We talk about understanding the role of our self-critical voices, understanding also in society how different genders need to be able to be both fierce and sensitive. We also talk about how to handle feelings of guilt and some tips and tricks on how to set boundaries with other people and the barriers that we might have to doing that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Miseducated with me, your host, Tash Doherty, where I talk to many interesting people about unlearning and the female experience. I am incredibly excited for the conversation with today's guest, Dr. Kristen Neff, one of the world's leading researchers and evangelists in the field of self-compassion. She's an associate professor of psychology at UT Austin and the co-founder of the nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And I have seen her TED talk about a hundred (laughs) times. It's one of my absolute favorites because she not only draws on her own experience, how self-compassion has worked for her, but... I've really also seen the mental health benefits of self-compassion now in my life because of her work. So I hope that her tips and tricks today will also leave you helped and mentally refreshed. So Dr. Neff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tash. Glad to be here. What I love about your story is that, as you said in your TED Talk, you pursued research in self-compassion because you really saw its benefits in your own life. So before we get into your personal story around this, how do you define self-compassion in your work today? Right. So if you look at the word in the Latin, passion is to suffer, come is with. So how how are we with our suffering? You know, whether that suffering is just a difficulty in our lives or a mistake we've made or some failure or inadequacy we experience. Really, it's just giving yourself the same compassion, kindness, care, support that you would naturally show to a good friend or someone else you cared about. When did you first become interested in self-compassion? So I learned about self-compassion my last year of graduate school. I was in a difficult place. I had just gotten a divorce and I was feeling a lot of kind of inadequacy and confusion. And I I was also under a lot of stress about whether or not I'd get a job. After getting my PhD, there were absolutely no guarantees. So I learned mindfulness meditation. And it was while learning mindfulness meditation in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who was one of the Buddhist teachers who talked a lot about self-compassion. You know, I started practicing it. I was just amazed by what a big difference it made in my own life in terms of my ability to cope through all the stress I was going through. And so when I got, I did end up getting a job at UT Austin, I decided to research it. Incredible. And so when you were working really hard for those like 20 or so years, as you were saying, was that when you were like teaching, building everything? And how did you keep going during all that time? Yeah, so I published my first paper in 2003, so I started thinking about it in about 2000, so it's 23 years now. 
And it really, I think, wasn't until I met my, my colleague, Chris Germer, in 2008, who said, hey, listen, I love the research, but it's not enough. You need to teach people how to be more self-compassionate. And I started doing workshops with him that I realized this is something that really changes lives. And then it's from that point on, really, I, you know, it was kind of an interesting position to be in because although I certainly didn't come up with the idea, I was one of the first to to research it. And so I felt a responsibility to shepherd the field into something that, that shows that, hey, self-compassion is really worth trying. Because, you know, a lot of people don't naturally assume that it's good to be self-compassionate. So by doing the research, I just started really, yeah, spreading the good word. Because again, it, it's like the superpower. It's, it's so strongly related to mental well-being. And it's not very difficult. It doesn't take time. It doesn't take money. <laughs> And yet people don't realize they have this resource in their own back pocket. There's like over 5,000 studies and dissertations on self-compassion. And as well, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, we've trained tens of thousands of teachers who are teaching self-compassion in their community. So it really is very gratifying to see it spread and grow like that. It's basically, it's so big, the research field now that I can't even keep up with it. I actually gave up. I used to put them on my website and I'm not going to update it after this year because literally three or four studies come out a day. It's just, it's way too much. In terms of the studies that your colleagues are coming out with right now, like what are some of the latest findings that are interesting to you? So for instance, we just got a study accepted for publication with NCAA athletes. You know, they're, they're really high achievers. They have to be best. And we found that if they were self-compassionate about their mistakes or failures in their training program, they increase their performance. The research is very clear on this, that people who are self-compassionate, who care about themselves, are less likely to be lazy. They're more motivated to get things done. They, I don't know, go to the doctor, they practice safe sex, they eat better, they exercise more, precisely because they care. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that because I suffered with a lot of anxiety and overachieving household. And I don't think my parents were ever like outwardly critical, but still there was this very high expectation of academic achievement and right. self-criticism. I have seen how self-compassion has helped me to not be so anxious and stressed about achieving all these goals. And so you could still have very high goals for yourself and be self-compassionate if those goals are really serving you. Like, why do you want to be number one? Do you want to be number one because if you aren't, you're worthless? Well, if that's the case, and you're going to be more anxious because your self-esteem or your self-worth is riding on it. But if you want to be number one just because you love your game, you know, you love being an athlete, you want to be all you can be, you want to achieve your goals, then it's a more sustainable form of motivation that's not linked to so much anxiety. It's linked to more self-confidence, and that's actually going to help you achieve. It's really totally separate from how high you set your goals. It's all about, do you shame yourself and belittle yourself when you don't? And that's what self-esteem does, but self-compassion doesn't. It just says, okay, so I failed. Everyone fails. What can I learn from this failure? How can I do better next time? And not taking it personally in that way actually helps you learn a lot more. And I think the reason why I see now that all my entire childhood was built up in the goal-oriented way with self-esteem is that it was all dependent on my parents' approval or my teacher's approval, and that was very important to me. So it's like, even if I wanted to be self-compassionate, I didn't have the tools, I didn't have any of the language, and the way that the system was set up was really self-esteem-oriented and like very unhealthy, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. It can really work against people. People sometimes give up. They just get fear of failure. You know, they achieve, but they still aren't happy. What good is that, you know? 
And that is really amazing that you've been able to show that with the high-performing college athletes. Those people are at the top of their game at the moment and also forming their sense of self as young people. So I feel like that's kind of an interesting time that you can do these kinds of interventions. Exactly. And because really it helps you learn. One of the biggest study findings is it creates a growth orientation as opposed to performance. It's not just about whether you succeed or fail. It's what do you learn? Do you improve? That's really what you care about. So when you care about yourself, you care about growing. Again, not as a way to defend your self-esteem, but just because you want to, because you're interested. It's important to you. Totally. And that was one of my favorite parts of your talk. When you're feeling really down and you failed and something really crappy happens to you, self-esteem or self-criticism would like knock you down harder and say like, oh my God, you're a failure. Whereas self-compassion, I always try to turn to myself in that moment and be like, if I feel bad, what can I physically do right now to make myself feel better? Like, should I run myself a bath, go for a walk? It's caring for yourself, but also learning. I mean, one of the things you can best do for yourself to help yourself the most is say, hey, it's human to fail. What can I learn from this situation? How might I do it better that next time? You know, so taking a bath can be useful unless taking a bath just means you're giving up. You know, that might be self-indulgent. It kind of depends on, you know, the purpose of the bath. Yeah. It's really taking a human approach to learning. Yeah. Humans fail. They make mistakes. That's how we learn. It's all good. And so in your personal life, what are your favorite self-compassionate things that you do in your daily life? Yeah, well, so I might just ask myself the question, what do I need right now is really important. And especially asking yourself that honestly, sometimes what you need is a break or to take a bath or to, you know, do something kind for yourself. But sometimes what you need is to sit down and work harder. So really asking that question, what do I need in terms of my ultimate health and well-being in an honest, authentic way and that really is what self-compassion is. So that's, I often do that for myself. What do you need right now, Kristen? What's going to be most helpful? And I mean, as the person who is like putting self-compassion out into the world, do you ever get frustrated and ashamed of the fact that you might be self-criticizing yourself ever? Or how does that work in your own psychology? Um, I usually don't exacerbate it with harsh self-criticism. I might feel it. And it may take me for a few moments to remember, oh yeah, what I need is self-compassion. Then I might put my hand on my heart and say some supportive words to kind of help me through the experience. So um, self-criticism arises occasionally, but really not that strongly. Shame seems to be different, though. Shame is just a natural, evolved emotion. When you fail at something or you make a mistake, shame arises. So I just make a lot of room for it. I give myself compassion for how hard it is to feel shame. Then I allow it to rise and pass away, and then I move on doesn't knock me down for long, put it that way. And in your research as well, do you see people reducing their shame by talking to other people? Well, certainly that's one of the ways people do it. In fact, it's interesting. One of the reasons people criticize themselves in front of others is because they're hoping for compassion. There's nothing wrong with getting compassion for others, absolutely. But if you receive compassion for others, but don't give it to yourself, you probably aren't going to take it in. You're going to dismiss it. Oh, they're just saying that to be nice. Or they may, others may not be available at the moment, right? They may have their own dramas going on, so they may not be there to give you what you need. So you might say self-compassion is another resource that you can use with yourself. But of course, it's not the only one. It's not like you, don't, you stop needing people, but you aren't so dependent on them for emotional support, which is so key. Definitely. And another practice that I found really interesting in one of the talks that you gave was like hearing out your self-critical voice, giving yourself critical voice, maybe a 
30 seconds or something of airtime to really understand what that voice is about. So can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Usually that self-critical voice is trying to keep you safe in some way. It might be trying to point out some danger it sees or afraid that other people are going to criticize you. So you want to kind of beat them to the punch, so to speak, or maybe hoping that you'll improve or change in some way so that you won't be in harm's way. So we need to respect that. We need to respect the impulse of the self-critic to keep us safe kind of th- even thank it for its efforts. The problem is, is self-criticism doesn't do a great job of keeping us safe. It's, so self-criticism stems from the, the body's natural fight, flight, or freeze response. When, when we feel threatened, we go into fight, flight, flight, or freeze. But when the threat is ourselves, like we, we've maybe made a mistake, then we fight ourselves through self-criticism, hoping we'll change, keep ourselves in line, or we flee in the sense of shame or isolation, or we freeze and get stuck and we ruminate. And so those strategies aren't actually very helpful when the threat comes from something we've done or something internal. So, but, you know, but it is natural. So we don't want to feel badly about that. That's just the way the brain works. And so we can say, okay, thanks for trying to keep me safe. What we're actually doing with self-compassion is we're hacking into a system that actually evolutionarily developed to care for others, which is the care system, whether Mm -hmm. it's caring for infants or caring for group members you know, feelings of being kind, supportive, warm, there for someone. That's also natural, but it's more natural for others, not so natural for ourselves. So we are doing a little biological hack, you might say. The good news is we don't really know the difference, but it's not so easily tapped into. We got to think about it a little bit more. Yeah, that is super fascinating because especially being socialized as a woman as well, you talk about this in your amazing book, Fierce Self-Compassion, how women can harness kindness to speak up, claim their power and thrive in that being raised a woman, it's interesting how those things can be so natural to us when it comes to caring for others. And yet we need to learn how to do that for ourselves. Yes, exactly. And if you look at people who've been socialized as women, just to be clear, it's not biological sex, not even gender identity. You might be trans or non-binary, but if you're socialized as a woman, you're given the message that you should be really compassionate to others and you should self-sacrifice. You should always put others' needs first. So women, for instance, are more compassionate to others and less compassionate to themselves because they've gotten that message. The good news about that, though, is that people socialized as women, they know how to be compassionate. They're experts. (laughs) They just have to give themselves permission to use those skills with themselves. Totally. And it's interesting because I find myself constantly being like, oh, how can I help? You know, like just being very socially consciously aware of how other people might be in need in a space and yet shutting down all of my own needs and my own feelings at the same time. Yes. Yeah, so, so, and so what we're doing is we aren't saying that we're more important than others, but we're just including ourselves in the circle of compassion. We're saying, you know, my needs count too. And in fact, what we know from the research is that if you constantly meet other people's needs and you don't meet any of your own, you'll burn out. Your cup will run dry. So in, in order to sustain giving to others, we actually have to include ourselves in the circle of compassion. Totally. So from the book, I want to understand more. If you could tell us more about the difference between tender and fierce self-compassion. Yeah, so I realized that people are getting a little confused about self-compassion because they thought it was just the nurturing, tender, accepting side of self-compassion, which it does. So with self-compassion, we accept ourselves, flaws and all. We kind of soothe ourselves. We comfort ourselves. We 
to let ourselves know it's okay, you know, we're there for ourselves. But that's really aimed more at accepting ourselves and also accepting our difficult emotions. You know, we're trying, we try to be there for ourselves and so we eventually calm down and heal. But that doesn't mean that we want to accept all our behaviors or all our situations. Because if you care about suffering and your behavior is bad for you or bad for other people, or if you're in a situation that's unjust or unfair or harmful in some way, it's not self-compassionate to accept it. In that case, we need to take action and try to do something different. So fierce self-compassion is more how we approach suffering in terms of doing something, you know, standing up for ourselves, drawing boundaries, saying no, taking action to meet our own needs, saying my needs count too. I'm going to spend some of my time and resources to make myself happy in addition to others, not instead of others. And then a really motivating change. I mean, motivation is a huge part of self-compassion, motivating Again, not because you're not good enough, motivating yourself because you care and want to be happy. So, and the reason I wrote my book for women or people socialized as women is because it's like people, for some crazy reason, even though we need to be both fierce and tender, we need both acceptance and action, but for some crazy reason, we've gendered these things. So people raised as men, they're allowed to be fierce. They're allowed to be angry. They're allowed to be agentic to get stuff done. But if they're too tender, too sensitive, they get bullied and they get called names. And that really is a a tragedy because it shuts men down and kind of removes their ability to have this resource of healing and self-compassion. They can't access it. They're totally reliant on other people to give that to them. And alternatively, people raised as women are allowed to be tender, well, especially towards others, not so much toward themselves. But if she's too fierce, she's too uppity, a rabble rouser, you know, speaks up, too competent, too agentic, people, they don't like that either. And if you look at the glass ceiling that still exists for women, partly it's because when women get to the very higher echelons of being very competent, very successful, people think, oh, she's too ambitious. I don't like her as much. You know, so it's really, it harms everyone, the fact that these have been gendered. So the whole premise of the book is how we need to balance and integrate them both. You know, and every single person is going to express these two qualities in their own unique ways. And that's healthy. And that's not the way it should be. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Even yesterday, I was having a conversation with some girlfriends over dinner and we were talking about a guy that we knew and, you know, have men having a lot of relationships with women or opening up about their feelings. It's like people can be so scared by that almost. And it's very like against the idea of masculinity, which is crazy. Yes. And by the way, women are just as bad as men in terms of these gender stereotypes. Like women are especially likely not to like fierce women. <laughs> or they, they might reinforce the idea that a man who's too tender is, you know, a wimp or something like that. And it, it just really is a shame because these two energies, everyone needs to be happy and healthy and they need to be in balance. I think the younger generation are questioning these very traditional gender roles. Hopefully at some point we can all just be our true selves and open to both these energies in a way that's healthy. Uh, we, aren't, we aren't quite there yet, unfortunately. No, but I do feel like hopefully allowing men to be more tender and women to be more fierce, that's actually a really interesting way of degendering as we've been kind of talking about. Because I do think people need to be both, you know, sensitive and also able to stand up for themselves in order to have good mental health. So it's very right. important. And, you know, there may be different ways people express them. It's not like everyone has to be the same. But if you just cut one of these essential energies away from one of the genders, that's just, you know, it's just really harmful. And I do think that's part of the reason you're seeing a lot more non-binary or trans people, especially in the younger generation, is they're saying, hey, why are you starting to 
put me in a shoebox. That's not who I am. Who am I really? And it's interesting, one of the things self-compassion gives you over and over, one of the main findings is it allows you to be authentic, your true self, mm. because you're, it doesn't matter so much what people think of you. If you could love and respect yourself just because you're a human being, you don't have to get everyone's approval. And so being less dependent on other people's approval allows you to be authentic. And that's a good thing for everyone. Yeah. I used to kind of be intimidated, I guess, by women who were ambitious or who were outspoken, but that's exactly who I yeah. actually am. So I remember just always thinking my yeah. initial thought would be like, oh, I don't like this woman because she's not adhering to the traditional yeah. gender roles that I, you know, that's right. But then actually those people I always know, if I feel that initially, I'm always going to be closer friends with them because they're actually a lot more similar to my own personality type. So it's like we right. have to really unlearn, you know, all of those initial judgments and thoughts that we have about other people. And especially along these like gender lines that are very outdated, I think. Yeah. And, and racial lines as well, or religious lines. We, all these, all these biases are unconscious. We don't have them on purpose, but they filter our perceptions about whether or not someone's likable. So really easy thing to do is, well, what if this person had a different gender identity? You know, what would I think of them then? And like often you wouldn't think that, you know, Dan was too uppity. It's just because it's Jan that you think she's up or whatever it is, but you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> so, or the same thing with racial stereotypes. It's just really questioning how much of our perception is skewed by these unconscious filters of how people are supposed to be and the fact that we don't like people and they don't fit our unconscious notion of how they're supposed to be, which is just so limiting. It's really, it's really sad. It's amazing that it comes back to self-compassion, right? If you treat yourself with kindness and love and respect, then that will open you up to, you know, all kinds of other people. And it's really interesting to think about it that way. Yeah, it actually allows you to treat other people with more respect. And the other thing it does, if you're going to the prejudice in particular, is it allows you to have compassion for yourself for your prejudices because you didn't choose them. Society gave them to you. You didn't choose like, growing up TV, all these stereotypes or in the media or, or in the culture. So when you're compassionate about yourself, say, okay, actually I have probably incorporated a lot of these unconscious stereotypes. It's easier to see them if you aren't judging yourself. But if you think, oh, that means I'm sexist or racist or whatever, you aren't even going to be able to see the biases you have because it's too painful to admit them. And then you're defensive and then you'll never change. So it's, it's really necessary, I think, for people to start being more egalitarian, more just in how they interact in the world. Yeah, totally. And I can think of a couple of examples from my childhood of things that I said to people that I'm really ashamed about now, you know, that maybe would have been racist yeah. or sexist or something at the time. And yet, like, you have to you have to admit that and like also come to terms with that shame and still nurture yourself through that and be like, hey, this was wrong. You know this was wrong, but you can't keep feeling shame forever about it because yeah. that's also not productive. Yeah, and what they find in the self-compassion research is even though there's less shame, there's not necessarily less guilt. So guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And if you think you are bad, you aren't going to want to look at it. But you need to acknowledge when you've done something harmful and they find that people are more self-compassionate, are more able to like apologize and, and acknowledge when they've made a mistake and actually try to repair the situation. So, and, and that's the commitment to taking action. So it's not just about acceptance. It's also, okay, I accept myself. I made a mistake. Ouch, really hurts. And I will really try not to do it again to the best of my ability.
Could you talk a little bit more about guilt? Because that's an experience as being socialized as a woman that I'm like trying to beat back against because I feel so guilty all the time. It's terrible. Guilt is really just the ability to acknowledge when you've harmed someone else or done something that you regret. That's actually, if you didn't have that at all, you'd be a psychopath. But the problem is, is people, first of all, there's a lot of shame in there. People think that I am bad. I'm a terrible person. And they use that to try to keep themselves in line, which backfires because, you know, you don't see clearly if you use a lot of shame. And also, you know, when you're talking about total guilt all the time, probably what's coming in here is it's not really all the time because you've really done something to hurt someone. It's probably more that you've hurt your self-image <laughs> or you're afraid that people won't like you. So for instance, drawing boundaries, that's one. So a lot of um, people, but especially women, have difficulty drawing boundaries because other people do guilt them or shame them and say, I won't like you if you say no. But with self-compassion, right, if you draw a boundary and it's fair and like you have the right to draw a boundary, then you don't need guilt. That's my boundary. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but that's just the way it is. If it's something that's really a responsibility that you're blowing off, well, then maybe you will have some guilt. Actually, I'm, I, that was my responsibility. I'm sorry. I should have. You know, so you have to use your wisdom to figure out what's going on. But a lot of the time we feel guilty because what we're really afraid of is other people not liking us mm -hmm. for our choices, which is something a little bit different. And then also, could you maybe give an example of boundaries, you know, like speaking up for ourselves in a compassionate way? Yeah, so boundaries are they're often very difficult for people because they're so complex. First of all, it's hard to know where we should draw a boundary because we do want to help other people and sometimes we do have responsibilities. On the other hand, we just can't give ourselves away because, you know, who else is going to meet our needs if we don't meet our own needs? So it's just trying to do that balancing act and it is complicated. Sometimes we may not have the power or the privilege to draw the boundary we'd like to draw as well. That has to be acknowledged. I mean, sometimes your boss isn't treating you fairly. And sometimes it's not the right thing to speak up because if you get fired, are you really helping yourself? So it's, it's, thing that's tricky. You know, we have to be flexible and look at all sides of the situation. But it's, it's so, so I teach drawing boundaries in my fierce self-compassion workshops. And I don't teach like how to draw a specific boundary because it's so complicated. What we deal with, what are some of the barriers to drawing boundaries? So sometimes it's the belief that we don't deserve to get our needs met, that other people are more important than us. So that needs to be looked at. Or it's the fear that other people won't like you. And by the way, this is not an ill-founded fear. It's true. Other people do like it when you give yourself away. And they probably, <laughs> a lot of people will not like it when you draw a boundary. It's like, you know, that is reality. So you have to ask yourself, how important is it for me to have this person like me? You know, and then again, it just depends on the situation. It depends how you do it. You Obviously, you don't want to be rude. You want to it can be actually helpful to draw a boundary explicitly as an act of self-compassion that you're really giving other people permission to do the same. There's no cut and dry response about when you should draw a boundary and when you shouldn't. But I think in general, we're so discouraged from drawing boundaries. And if you think about it historically, there's kind of a reason for that because the people in power really liked the fact that women didn't draw boundaries <laughs> and they could have them do whatever they wanted. Like, you know, the woman who worked full-time job and do all the housework and childcare, 
Yeah. You know, who does that serve? Yeah, I mean, well, even before... You have to ask those questions. Yeah, before women even had jobs, I mean, it was like following the Lord's word and your husband's word and all yes. that kind of stuff. I'm sure that was great. <laughs> that was great for men for a really long time. <laughs> exactly, that, that really clear. I mean, who, who does it benefit? I, I really do think self-compassion is political in the end of the day because it does force you to ask yourself, well, what's really good for me? And not just assuming that pleasing others is the only way to go getting that validation and that actually segues pretty interestingly to another question that I was going to ask you which is that a lot of industries are like made up of the fact that we feel bad about ourselves so like the beauty industry even the wellness industry do you think self-compassion in addition to being a kind of political is also maybe anti-capitalist I'm curious to what you think about that yeah I mean to the extent that I mean, capitalism is complex, but to the extent that a lot of advertising and social media is predicated on, we want you to feel badly about yourself because you don't look like this, or you don't, you know, maybe if you buy my $200 jeans, then you'll look like this. So one of the most consistent findings of the self-compassion research is that it makes your self-worth less contingent on other people's approval or your appearance, for instance. And so when you do that, then you're less susceptible to those messages. So absolutely. I mean, really, it is a source of self-worth. And by the way, if you care about yourself, you'll you'll try to exercise and eat well. So it's just finding what's right for you personally instead of what other people say you're supposed to be like. And so I was going to ask you then, in terms of what you're working on right now, what are your ambitions going forwards? I'm really focusing full-time on my writing and speaking and doing workshops. And we have this nonprofit, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion getting self-compassion training to those who need it, especially marginalized populations that may not have the privilege or the time or the awareness or the money to, to take training. It's kind of like I worked very hard for 20 years and now I'm reaping the benefits in the sense that people are talking about it. It's just nice that there's the interest now. I love being an evangelist. I still get excited about self-compassion. It's, it's never going to go out of style. It's such, you know, kindness. Kindness is always a good thing, self-kindness especially. So I think that's really exciting seeing how it's really catching on in the larger culture. That's cool. And are you writing any books that you can mention? (laughs) Yes. So Chris Gerber and I are working on a self-compassion workbook for burnout, actually, because burnout is so ubiquitous nowadays. So it's mainly just this concrete self-compassion tools. It's a short book, easy to read, because people are burnt out don't want to read a long, difficult book to help with some of these difficulties in feeling exhausted. The requirements of the modern world are just getting more and more intense by the day. That's awesome. I guess that's most of my questions. I have one kind of more personal question, which you're completely welcome to not answer if you don't want to. But I did see The Horse Boy, which you were in, and, and this is not really even part of your actual career, but in terms of your life. What do you think about the movie now? Like, do you ever watch it or like the reception that it got? Like, what's your perspective on it these days? Yeah, so I don't watch it, but so, you know, for people who don't know, The Horse Boy is a, a movie about my ex and actually, so we, we split up, but my son is autistic and we went to Mongolia on horseback, riding on horseback to consult with various shamans. And he did, I can't say why, but he did have a lot of leaps and bounds forward. And I I don't watch it myself, but my son has read the book. His his father also wrote a book a few times. And he really loves the story. 
The amazing thing is just how well he's doing. So he's living independently, he's driving, he's going to community college, he's got a job. He's just doing really, really well. So, um, you know, the horse boy in the sense of my son is the horse boy. <laughs> you know, he's just he's just a joy to be with. But yet it is, a lot of people don't put two and two together that that's me, that I'm the mother of the horse boy. So it's kind of a mix of two worlds. But I, but I can tell you that self-compassion, there's a lot of research showing that self-compassion is key for autism parents because of the stress of raising a special needs kid. And I know that's for sure really helped me a lot. Yeah, totally. Thank you for answering that. I'm just too curious because I kind of did put two and two together. And then, but at the same time, it's in a completely uh-huh. different part of your life where you guys would like travel to Mongolia. And, yeah. yeah, but it's a really, really incredible story as well. So thank you. So yeah, so that was all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything that you wish that I had asked you before we wrap up? I think you covered it all. I mean, but maybe just to say that it's one thing to hear about self-compassion, but you won't really know until you try it for yourself. All you've got to do is say, you know, if something difficult happens to you, what would I say to a friend in a situation? You know, would I say what I'm saying to myself? Probably not. And you can just try it out. And once you see the difference it makes in your ability to be with difficult emotions, you know, you won't need to be convinced by the research. You'll just see that it, it works. So it's kind of an unconditional sense of self-worth. All flawed human beings are intrinsically worthy of compassion. I just want to really personally thank you again, because as I said, I grew up in this very intensive, super self-esteem driven schools and everything and I 100% have the mental health and the ability to do things today because of self-compassion so thank you so much that's great okay. wonderful it's nice okay. talking with so you okay so great guys. talking with you too okay that's a wrap <laughs> bye thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Miseducated I've left links to Dr. Neff's work website books everything in the show notes so definitely go check that out you can support us more on Substack by going to miseducated.substack.com and I hope you'll tune in for another episode soon. Lots of love. Bye.